0: Welcome to the Table podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to the Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary, and my guest today is Abe Curavilla who is professor of uh, preaching here at Dallas Theological Seminary. He gets to listen to lots and lots and lots of sermons. Student sermons. Student sermons. And – uh, do you have any idea about how many it is in any given semester what the range is
1: depends on the load but I have heard up to 96 a semester
0: 96 sermons a semester so that's packing two years worth of church preaching in one semester that's exactly right sometimes yeah. it worries me about the church yes <laughs> I understand so how so how did you how did how did you end up being a professor of preaching
1: well that goes back a long way I was um, working on a Ph.D. in a medical field Mm -hmm. about three decades ago in Houston.
0: Okay, so you were a medical doctor to begin with, correct? That's correct, Okay, I was
1: working on a Ph.D. in immunology when I happened to be thrown into a church plant situation. Uh Uh-huh. They didn't have anybody to teach, Uh and so I was it without any theological education whatsoever.
0: Actually, it's not that unusual a situation to be uh, in parts of the world.
1: It leaves me with uh, great sympathy for those people. Yes. And I just enjoyed what I was doing. Mm-hmm. It was probably some of the most formative years in my life. Mm-hmm. Thoroughly enjoyed the, the churchmanship and everything that goes along with it, particularly preaching. And that's when I decided someday I want to go to seminary and study more about preaching and do some writing about it and
0: end up teaching it. So mm-hmm. here I am. So did you uh, – now, did you do any formal theological training before you came into seminary or how did you get how did you get exposed to to your interest in in the, pursuing seminary The churches though?
1: that I attended when I was in Houston were pastored by DTS profs uh-huh. and that
0: influenced my direction. So you came here for your studies?
1: Yeah, but Ten years after I decided I wanted to go to seminary, I ended up here.
0: Okay. Well, that's good. You acted quickly on that decision. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> it started late. Uh, and, uh, and you were just drawn to the preaching while you were going through? Is that what happened?
1: Preaching was an interest, as I said, when I was in that church plan situation. Mm-hmm. And I got more interested in the hermeneutics of preaching while I was going through seminary. And as I was doing more pulpit work, mm-hmm. there were issues in preaching that uh, – stuck in my mind and said, I, I, I want to work a little bit more on this and maybe spend the rest of my life working through mm. this, which led me on another pathway to Aberdeen. That's and then right. Another PhD, but... Yeah. Uh, yeah, the end of it is I'm still here and still working on preaching and trying to learn from
0: my students. So, so your doctoral dissertation was on the hermeneutics of preaching? Or yes, how to go
1: from text to praxis, the movement from text to application.
0: Okay, very good. Well, that's a theme that is beloved to both of us, so we could have a great time here. Um, so let's talk a little. Our topic is, you know, what makes for a good sermon, which I guess you formulate in part by hearing a lot of... Mediocre sermons. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is no such thing as a perfect sermon. Yes. So that
1: I, I tell my students that all the time, and I'm happy if I can do a B plus week after week. Mm-hmm. I'd be very content with that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there there are some criteria that we, as a department, use to grade sermons and uh, accuracy to the text and relevance to the audience and is it interesting and clear are the four criteria that we generally
0: use. Okay, well let's work through those um, uh, together and 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 then I imagine also there is some uh, with the emphasis on relevance to the text. There also is the issue of how you rhetorically. At least attempt to draw in an audience and gain their attention and yes, interest the, in what's the, going the, the on. The last
1: two parts, the interestingness and the clear mm-hmm. aspect of the evaluation.
0: Okay. The so I aspects. think the way I want to go through this is rather than use the criteria of the department, which we can talk about as we go through each part, is maybe to go through kind of the structure of a sermon, which would be you know and really oversimplified, but introduction, body, and and conclusion. Um, Uh, But before you even introduce a sermon, obviously you got to have some idea where you're going. Exactly. And so let's talk a little bit about before you even take a breath and pray at the beginning of the message. Um, What do you see involved in the preparation of the pastor who's going to give the sermon?
1: I think the best way to start is, of course, with the text, mm-hmm. and I know we have chatted a little bit about that in the past, mm-hmm. but understanding the text for what the author is doing with what he's saying is critical, mm-hmm. and that is the first step towards moving towards a sermon. Mm-hmm. Once that is covered, then you start thinking of how can our lives be applied to that text, to the call of that text, or the other way around, how does the text apply to the audience? Okay. And uh, once those are clear, then at that point you start thinking about an outline and organizing things.
0: Okay Now obviously one of the challenges of communicating to a sermon is the, is the variety of people that you're dealing with in your audience that not everybody's coming from the same place. Uh, fortunately, we have a text that we believe is inspired. so we think that the text addresses people where they need to be addressed. So um, you know, there's a very famous book on preaching by John Stock called Between Two Worlds, in which his metaphor is you know you're trying to connect the the world of the text with the world of your audience. Um, What what, again, even before you get up and and speak and 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 prepare in the text, how do you how do you begin to think about those two uh, those two parts of the sermon, the the world of the text and the world of your audience?
1: Let me address the second one first. I really think that preaching ought to be pastoral, Mm -hmm. by which I don't necessarily mean the office of pastor, but somebody in a shepherding capacity, whether that means a large church, a small group, a Sunday school class, youths, young adults, whatever that might be. So, you cannot divorce preaching from pastoring. The mm. ideal is that the two should go together because preaching is a form of shepherding and spiritual formation. Mm-hmm. So knowing your audience is therefore very critical to, to that aspect. Mm-hmm. And that's where I try to bring in the audience factor, ca- claiming that preaching ought to be pastoral. Mm-hmm. That's critical. Going back to the other aspect of the church, the, co- the aspect of the preaching, the call of the text is usually something very general and generic, Mm -hmm. so to speak. It may not necessarily deal with 21st century life in specific terms. Mm -hmm. The task of the pastor then is to say, in view of the fact that I am your spiritual director, mentor, preacher, pastor, elder, parent figure, so to speak, exercising pastoral wisdom at that point, I think this is what we should do in light of the call of the text. These are the specificities that we should
0: engage in. Okay. And I'm, a, I'm assuming that you would agree with me that part of uh, developing that sensitivity is really having a pretty good awareness of uh, – I'm going to assume a pastoral model here – of your flock, kind of what they're doing, the lives that they live, the circumstances they find themselves in, that kind of thing, so that, so that the specifics connect to some degree.
1: Mm-hmm yeah, I think uh, when I say that preaching ought not to be divorced from pastoring, the ideal is that the person who's preaching is the one doing the pastoring is on the deathbed, is by the hospital bed, is by going is living life with the flock, mm-hmm. whatever size that flock might be, and whatever exact composition of that flock might be, the pastor shepherds them through life. and one facet of that is the pulpit.
0: Yeah, when I was taught preaching, I was taught by Haddon Robinson, and of course, he used to talk about. I I think the way he described it was seven kind of typical people in your audience, and you know, you think about you know who you're dealing with, um, uh, the mother, the the, even the single mother, the. the people who work nine to five, the, the teenager or college student, you know, different levels of people that you have to be thinking about as you're thinking about addressing the text. And I'm spending some time on this because obviously um, obviously, connecting to your audience with a sermon, you not only want to connect with the level of content, but you want to connect in terms of their life. Uh, my premise is that when people interact with Scripture, uh, that, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and lay it out, and then we can have a conversation, um, that, uh, that oftentimes we do a, or at least attempt to do a pretty good job of going from text to life, um, and that that is the direction, the beginning direction of all interaction with Scripture. But most people who read their Bible actually read it in kind of a reverse direction. They come out of the situation of their life oftentimes and want to know how this text speaks into where God has them. And so that dynamic is an important dynamic to wrestle with as a speaker and preacher in which the text has its primary and, and uh, defining role, if you want to put it that way in terms of its meaning, and yet and yet, connecting it to where people are is a very, very important part of communication. Yeah,
1: I think it's a both-hand situation. I think, again, f- the, the staple diet of the flock ought to be starting with the text mm-hmm. and how that applies to our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a place for the topical way of preaching where you go from issues and topics that are affecting me or the congregation and then find the texts that address those issues. There's a, certainly a place for that. The difference, I would say, is the difference between an emergency room and a preventive medicine clinic. Mm -hmm. I see the topical as being ER. Mm -hmm. You have an issue, you go to a doctor. I see the other way of looking at it as a preventive medicine clinic. You are not giving antibiotic shots for for an infection, but you are vaccinating them against these infections in the first place, Mm -hmm. creating habits and patterns of life. So if the topical sermons are a spiritual response to issues of life the other one is spiritual formation for
0: life interesting because i think <coughs> i would view topics a slightly differently in the sense of i mean it does have that emergency role but the other thing that it does is is that it's canonically framing that a good topical sermon can bring the whole array of the canon to a conversation in such a way that um that you see that this passage contributes this piece and that passage contributes that piece and as you put the whole of the canon together you get a good a better kind of three sixty view of what that topic looks yeah. like biblically. Yeah,
1: that's topical sermons and that's how topical sermons are taught here. How mm-hmm. does the canon address a given topic?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um the other issue that of course is is that when we preach, we preach in a very we preach in a very messy world. Um you know, people Come in and, and, and. We live in a fallen world. We're fallen creatures. Uh, We we end up having to deal with um, a lot of. Pastoring ends up spending a lot of time dealing with, with with messy situations. So you know the the remark you often hear about the pastor is well, sheep can be dirty, and and smelly. Yeah, it can. So so uh, bringing the text to those tensions in life that we inevitably have because we live in a fallen world is another important part of uh, of. Dealing with the preaching situation,
1: absolutely. I think almost every text will be touching on a message issue somewhere in some in our lives. Yeah. I don't think there's any text that's devoid of that. So the goal of the pastor, the preacher, is to see what the call of the text is and see where the lives are that need messing around with, mm-hmm. and bring those two together.
0: Now, one of the things that's easy to do with a topic, where, how do we do good sermons? Is to is to focus on the pastor and the uh, and how he puts the uh, sermon together, but I want to take a little bit of time to talk about the audience here a little bit. And what do you see, as someone who teaches preaching, the responsibility of the audience to be to, uh, to a sermon? I mean, obviously there's attentiveness, but beyond that, how would you counsel someone who's, who listens to sermons on a weekly basis to wrestle with, how do I appreciate what it is that the pastor's supposed to be serving me as he ministers to me? I would probably, if I
1: were to, if I had the chance to teach uh, some of the audience members in my church, would ask them the same things. You got to be aware of what your pastor is doing. Is it true to the text? Is it relevant to the audience? Is it interesting? It's is it clear? It's not enough that it be interesting and clear, but it's got to be true to the text and relevant to our lives. Mm-hmm. Unless all of those things are there, a sermon it doth not make. <laughs> so I would say that's true. That's almost like putting a critical hat on. Mm -hmm. While that is important and that should be something that our audiences should be aware of, there's also the sense of submission to pastoral wisdom. Mm -hmm. I am reminded of one of my departmental colleagues who preaches in a local church, which is attended by one of our language profs. Uh So knowing what my colleague was preaching on, I went to this language prof and asked him what he thought about my colleagues preaching on this topic, knowing that he probably wasn't doing the text much justice, at least that's what my colleague himself had confessed to me.
0: (laughs) Okay. I actually may know this scenario, but go (laughs) ahead.
1: I was I was taken by the response of this professor Mm -hmm. of this language department. He said well, I need to listen to so-and-so. He has a lot of wisdom. Mm -hmm. He has a lot of wisdom. Mm -hmm. So he was basically telling me that while he thought the person was probably not true to the text, Mm -hmm. uh, that he respected the pastoral wisdom and the ethos that the man brought to the pulpit and that he needed to listen. I think that ought to be a a first, a principle of first importance for anybody listening to a so sermon. So
0: open ears and open heart, but with a little, a uh, touch of a discerning eye.
1: It's a, it's a principle of charity with which you address the first principle that with which you listen to somebody or even you read something. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give the author or the speaker the benefit of the doubt. I'm mm-hmm. approaching this with charity. Yes, I may not agree with him in the end, but uh, I am going to give him the benefit of the doubt. And, and if, if nothing else, he is my pastor yes. and I should listen.
0: And and I I confess I've heard lots of sermons where I go I'm not sure I read the text that way but the, actually the application that's being drawn out of it is not too bad <laughs> and 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 so it, it it does represent a little bit of a challenge. Well, all that is kind of uh, introduction and prolegomena to to kind of working through this. So let's talk about the let's talk about the introduction to a sermon. What should a introduction of a sermon uh, seek to achieve as you uh, walk into it. And, and granted, there are a variety of ways in, into a passage. So, um, so when I ask this question, I'm sort of asking it generically with the recognition that sometimes um, you can – there are lots of ways to play with the way in.
1: Yeah, there are a lot of ways to open the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, as one has struggled with the text and gotten a sense of where it's going and how you can make it relevant, the next real thing that you need to struggle with, which forms an important part of the introduction, is what is the need for the audience? Why should they listen to the sermon? Mm-hmm. Why should they spend the next 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes listening to the sermon? What is the need? And it is up to the preacher to elicit that need if it's not felt mm-hmm. and to create that need. And the lead-in to that need is usually some kind of an image of mm-hmm. some sort. So and there's an image, there's a need, and then there's the subject of the sermon. Mm-hmm. There is the text from which it is obtained. Mm-hmm. And then a preview is often helpful, as to say, you're going to hear this in three or four different ways. Mm-hmm. So you're catching their attention. Mm-hmm. You're telling them why they should listen. You're telling them what they're going to listen to, the subject. Mm -hmm. You're going to tell them from where this is being got, the text, and you're telling them how they should listen, the preview. Mm -hmm. Those are probably the five essential aspects of an introduction, the image, the need, the subject, the text, and a preview.
0: Okay, now let's talk about the subject of the sermon a little bit because what you're introducing here is something that, at least in many preaching circles, is called the beginning of an ex of a a homiletical idea. I'm in my own mode here. Um, The beginning of a homiletical idea and 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 laying out uh, the the theme or the proposition of the sermon in many ways is at the core of the idea. What the text is actually affirming or where the text. Is uh, is taking me and and uh, in thinking about the idea, how much of the idea is the is the content of the passage, and how much of the idea is pushing towards the application of the passage? It is probably
1: moving to? more towards the application than the content. Okay, but so in a very general sense, okay, the attitude we must have in such and such a situation, mm-hmm. something like that, without giving too much away in the introduction.
0: Because part of the issue is going to be you want to introduce the topic, but you don't want to spill all the beans at the That's beginning. That's right. Want to play so you keep cards the
1: close to your chest.
0: Yeah, um, and uh, it's interesting. The the reason I raised the content versus application question, of course, is, is that we work on the front half in our department on the developing the message of the text in a way that the exegetical idea of the text uh, gets affirmed and identified. Um, I try, because I'm thinking about the fact that the exegetical idea, the content idea usually gets left behind for the homilical idea when you actually handle the passage. I try very early on to get the student to be crisp. Um, most exegetical ideas that we see are, are long and unwieldy and, um, and uh, are way too complex. Um, but. Uh, but I take it that one of the goals of the idea in identifying the subject, and then eventually we come to the complement. Of course, is um, is to state this in a in a memorable, which means it oftentimes has to be in a kind of crisp uh, kind of uh, a form. Are you talking about the introduction in the well of setting of the up the setting it up the idea with the introduction? Yeah, the
1: subject uh, could very well be a question. Okay, what will you do when opposition? Mounts against you. Mm -hmm. That could be enough. Mm -hmm. So, really, the subject is: I'm going to tell you at the end of the sermon, you will know what to do when opposition mounts against you, or something of that sort.
0: So, you may not come out and state it as the beginning of a proposition. You may just simply raise the problem to get in touch with the felt need, and and the felt need is that opposition is active against us. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm making this up. Right. Right. Right.
1: So there would probably be a particular context in which this opposition is working, but that could very well be the need and the image might be the story, the picture of some kind of opposition. Mm -hmm. And moving to the need is, a you know, you and I are going to face this opposition if we already are not. Mm -hmm. How will you handle it? That's the subject. Mm -hmm. Today, we're going to look at such and such passage. And first we'll see this, then we'll see this, then we'll see this, and basically saying this is this is what you're going to get at the end of the circle.
0: Okay, so so you're you're as you mentioned drawing attention, creating interest. You're also doing a little bit of mapping for where you're going to take the preview. (laughs) How 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 they will hear it. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, let's let we're almost at our break here, so I I don't want to get too much into this. Let me let me ask you this question: What are what are some problems with introductions that sometimes come up? Probably the biggest one is an absence of a clearly stated
1: or elucidated need. Mm-hmm. Why am I listening to this? It has to be established right from the start. It is a it is an integral part of making the sermon relevant. Mm-hmm. And I think that ought to be something that preachers should think through carefully. Why is this what would I lose if this text weren't here and if the sermon was not preached? So
0: I can't assume that the topic's important and it's going to draw the audience's interest. Not I've really got to work pretty hard to make sure that they're with me.
1: This is somebody once asked me, "What's the difference between your seeing patients and your preaching?" That was a very open-ended question, but mm-hmm. I thought about it and I said, "My patients come to me knowing that they are sick. Mm-hmm. Not so with my audience. Yeah, yeah. They don't know why they're here. They don't know why they need the sermon. They don't know why they are sitting through this. Not in a hostile fashion, right. but generally apathetic." So I have to tell them, this is important. This is why we're preaching. This is why this text is there, because this is what you're going to learn. Mm-hmm. This is critical for the way you and I live our Christian lives, and this is how God would want And us to
0: oftentimes live. it's with topics that a person may or may not have even thought about being significant to their spiritual life, and yet there it is in the Bible. Or that there's is actually rest.
1: a call for the tech, from the text for this particular behavior in such a particular Situation mm-hmm. uh, to that level of specificity, I don't think people have generally uh, paid attention to that.
0: Well, it, it, you know, it's, it, it, I feel a little bit like we're doing some uh, uh, science here, but it, 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 it is fascinating to think through, uh, think through what goes into a sermon and particularly what sets it up, because I do think that. Um, Sometimes the most critical part of the sermon is the first five minutes when you're actually – when the audience actually decides whether they're going to buy in to the rest of your time or not. 180 seconds is all you have. Yeah. That's when they say, I'm going to listen or I'm not going to. Yeah, it's not long. Okay, so so we were we we've introduced the sermon. Okay, <laughs> we we had been in the business of introducing the which, sermon, which
1: really is the last thing you ought to do as you prepare the
0: sermon. Interesting. Yes, because you want to know what you're introducing. Exactly right. So um, uh, it's interesting because uh, uh, I'll, I'll I'll leave that for later. Um, and you've already mentioned that you have about 180 seconds to gain your audience's attention and their commitment to listen to you while you present the need and and try and introduce the subject and do those things that a introduction, a good introduction is supposed to do, Um, working with an image that sometimes will drive the sermon and, and the backdrop of the sermon. Let's talk about the body of the sermon itself, and obviously here the text is king in terms of what drives the passage. But here's a question I often get asked and I think raises some interesting issues, and that is, when you pursue the message of the text, do you feel obligated necessarily to go in the order of the text, or do you have some freedom as to how you go about bringing out the idea that's in the text?
1: Yes, there's considerable freedom. I'm not constrained to go in the order of the text simply because it's a different medium. Mm -hmm. It's written and I'm speaking. I need to convey the thrust or the theology, as I call it, of the text, but I may not necessarily have to go verse
0: 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 uh, in that order. So sometimes you can work backwards to you unview the so text, or dive in the middle where the maybe the center Absolutely. center theme is. or Depending attention. on you,
1: your audience, and how you want to convey this across.
0: Okay, so so part of, part of this is to suggest how much, and I mean this in a positive sense, how much creativity there is in doing a sermon, in working with the meaning of the text, uh, drawing out its interest, drawing out the points, etc. There's a there's a lot of there, are, uh, the preacher is faced with a lot of options far more options than there are
1: preachers. <laughs> yeah. So I generally have in my mind the picture of an engine. What I want to teach then is really the engine. You can put whatever body you want on it, whatever mm-hmm. color, whatever shape, AC, no AC, heat, warmers, seat warmers or not. or. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seat it's warmers are really recommended when it's cold, <laughs> but anyway, go ahead. So all of those things are your choices. Those mm-hmm. are options that are based on you, your personality, your audience, and where you're ministering.
0: Um, realistically, what do you think um, about the kind of time that a pastor can give to the preparation of a text? I mean, th- this is something that we – I know we've discussed in our own exegetical department. We, you know, there's the ideal world that you, w- you, know, you wish people had enough time in the context of the pastor. To to be able to spend, say, X hours on a text or something like that. But the reality often is that you don't have that kind of time. So so what, what kind of advice do you give to pastors as they think about the time they spend actually interacting with the text?
1: Over the last two years, I have had on my blog at homileticswithanx.com mm-hmm. a series of interviews with a number of preachers, and one of the questions that I ask them is how many hours they spend on the sermon. Mm-hmm. It's interesting if you want to go back and compute the average. It's about 15 to 20 hours for a sermon. And mm-hmm. I would say from my personal experience, yeah, I, I would fit into that. That's actually that very
0: close to what we recommend as well. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, we, we tend to be on the upper end of that number, but that's basically the number that we give students. Uh, and, and the other thing that I think is important to realize is, um, and I do think this is true, is that... The more you teach and preach, it's it's a little bit like a building snowball, uh, in the sense of your understanding of the text grows as you spend more time in the Word all the time. So I remember, I think there's, a, I think this was an Oswald Sanders book on spiritual leadership in which he's telling the story about giving a, a talk and and someone walked up to him and and said how long did it take you to prepare that message and his response was all my life <laughs> you know that, that basically he was saying he was drawing on everything that god had taught him yeah. in his exposure to I, I would work. say
1: that if somebody asked me how how many years did it take you to become a dermatologist
0: yeah yeah so um, so it's a good it's a good answer to the to the question, so so let's talk about the text a little bit. How how do you recommend people interact with the text? What what um, I have in mind here: their own study, their use of resources, that kind of thing. What what kind of recommendations do you give? To I'd say with? both
1: end. Okay, since the Holy Spirit speaks through voices other than me, mm-hmm. I, I have to respect that through the democracy of the dead, even even dead others mm-hmm. and those who are writing. Think of thinking of books as just funnels of everything that. Uh, God has taught God's people over the ages. So it's a both-hand situation for me.
0: Yeah, we Yeah, we, we use the picture of a – they're like conversation partners for you about the text, and good commentators will spur your thinking in ways that will help you encourage your preaching. Not just uh, – uh, interestingly enough, a good commentator will do it in a way that doesn't just spur your thinking in terms of the content of the text, although oftentimes that's what their goal is, but sometimes they'll spur your thinking about how to even – Frame and present the text, ta- that image that you're talking about, or something like that. Sometimes will come out of your interaction that you use with those co- in the conversations you have with those. The the they dead they their the page is dead and the words are dead, but they're coming from a live mind that is uh, trying and, to stimulate your thinking.
1: And they're interacting with a live mind. Mm-hmm. The the reader himself is a. Live mind right there. So.
0: Now again, in, in uh, I'm, uh, this is kind of a positive and negative um, template I'm using to ask you these questions. But what are some of the uh, what are some of the problems or issues you see in interacting with getting to the meaning of the text? What do you commonly run into?
1: I think probably the biggest one for me, and this is something that I've been working on for a while, is catching the thrust of the text, mm-hmm. what the author is doing with what he's saying, the sense mm-hmm. of the pragmatics of the text. I think we're very good at understanding the semantics of the text, what it means, and how the words relate to one another, and the clauses and the parsing. Uh, going beyond that to ask, so, how does, so what is the diagnosis? Mm-hmm. All of these symptoms, mm-hmm. how do they add together and come up and uh, and create a diagnosis of what's going on? Mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest failure, and that's something that I also
0: see commentaries as being uh uh, not very attentive to. So um, and when you say that, are you thinking about um, a how, a why? I mean, what kinds of questions are we trying to answer when we're looking and fishing for that thrust of the text? or is it the question is determined by what the text itself is doing? Yeah, the text drives that and the questions
1: are driven by the text. but
0: still, uh,
1: what why is this said? Why is this stated here? What is it doing here? How does it fit? all the other elements in a pericope or a preaching text and how does this pericope fit with pericope's preceding and following and mm-hmm. so all of the Sense of what is the author doing in a whole book, as well as in this pericope, that contributes
0: to the movement of the whole book. So this is a pursuit of a message in a context, really. No, very, very much so. Yeah, and um, and and can be very much a, a challenge, uh, and it's one of the, if I can say it this way, it's it's one of the problems that preachers have if they come with their situation. Um, how can I say that? Too prominent in the questions that they're asking, that the issue can be that the the uh, the static that they're getting from the situation they find themselves may actually prevent them from seeing what's happening in the text or may frame it in a way that may not be in connection with what the text is doing. This is
1: true. That's another advantage of just preaching pericope by pericope because you're not constrained by what particular situation your life is going through at any given time for you to pick the text that addresses that, but you're just f- – Being forced, in a sense, to go through the whole council of God.
0: Okay. Um, So, uh, what other advice would you have for those who are thinking about gaining the meaning of the text? You say you've been wrestling with this for a long time. What are there any kinds of probing questions that you tend to ask on a regular basis to get at what this text is doing and saying? I think we're all taught in seminary to make observations
1: of the text. Mm I think a synthetic approach to say, so what does this observation mean? Mm-hmm. So why was this done in that way? Let me give you a quick example. In 1 Samuel 15, 1, where Saul is asked to kill all the Amalekites, mm-hmm. the story starts with the word of the Lord came to Samuel to tell Saul to destroy the Amalekites. But in the Hebrew, it's actually the voice of the word of the Lord came mm-hmm. to Saul. Mm-hmm. And I, very few English translations have that. Immediately that should raise, why that redundancy? The voice of the word of the Lord came to Samuel. So we're taken by surprise there, and I think it's very much appropriate to ask why. Mm-hmm. Hold that thought. So Samuel goes, tell Saul, kill all the malachites. Saul says yes, but he doesn't. Right. He saves the chief of the men and the best of the animals. Right. And later Samuel confronts him, did you do what the Lord told? Oh, yeah, I did what the Lord told me to do. And then you have those powerful words in verse 14, well, what's the bleating of the sheep and the lowing of the cattle that I'm hearing? Mm -hmm. Well, it's not lowing and bleating in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. It's voice. Mm -hmm. So clearly, and and again, this is a failure of translation to translate it as lowing and bleating, which is probably what really happened, Mm -hmm. but the way the Hebrew text is saying it is actually using the word voice. And by that, you're immediately hit by... There you go. This is the connection. Which voice are you listening to? The voice of the word of the Lord or the voice of these seductive titillations of the world? Mm-hmm. So so it's one thing to make the observations, and then it is, it is to connect the rash with other symptoms and mm-hmm. come up with a diagnosis that says... Ah, I think this is what you have, Mm -hmm. and I'm again harking back to my (laughs) dermatological experience. Now,
0: I've heard you preach several times, and the one thing that does strike me about your preaching, and you do this very, very clearly when you're developing the text, is is that you show people these kinds of connections and these kind of what my my, what I would call either word repetitions or word associations. That I I take it that that's actually one of the ways you, uh, one of the things you concentrate on as you're observing the text is looking for these. These these threads or these lines that run through the whole of a passage.
1: That is true. That, those are not the only things, but the fact remains that the text is the only inspired artifact, if you want to call it, that we have. Mm-hmm. What happened is not inspired. Mm-hmm. It's the Holy Spirit's account of what happened that is inspired and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction. So, paying attention to the text, which is why I wrote the book called "Privilege the Text." Right. Right. How is the story being told? Mm-hmm. What is, yeah, and that goes for repetitions, structural issues like chiasms, and there are other things as well, and that's dependent on the particular picture. But there, so the reason that I bring it out to my audience is this the Word of God and the people of God. Mm-hmm. Why should I interpose myself between the Word of God for the people of God? It is simply because they may not separated in language, culture, Mm -hmm. centuries, and millennia, may not be able to catch the thrust of the text. Mm -hmm. So my task is almost as if I'm imagining a pericope as a painting, Mm -hmm. and these are gallery visitors, Mm -hmm. and I am the curator or the docent, pointing out, look, did you see this? Did you see this? So that they catch the force and then i duck of course <laughs> <laughs> obviously it yeah. has obviously it has to have hit me first in right this time. right exactly and, and my task is not to take on more i am not da vinci right right my task is to point out what the text is saying and let the force hit it and then there's a secondary task because i am their spiritual formation leader director pastor preacher elder parent figure i also have to tell them listen if this is the force of the text and this is what the text calls you to do, how can we put it into shoe leather? Let me give you a few suggestions. That is the application part. So the, I see preaching the body mm-hmm. as being composed of two parts. First is to catch the thrust and the theology of the text. Second, in my pastoral wisdom, to give suggestions as to how they may apply now,
0: it it's, it's It's interesting because on the, on the one hand, we've got this, this um, if I can say, helping the the text project itself on the audience that you're kind of the facilitator for, if I can say it that way. It may not be the best words, but I like that. Okay, and yet on the other hand, uh, when you ask questions of why this is happening, okay, which is your which is your your kind of you know going deep and digging for the thrust, that is a challenging exercise because sometimes the text doesn't say it, it leaves it implied, or there is a cultural script at work in the text that is related to a customer or background that that triggers the expectations that you're looking for that a why question might raise that a person sitting in the 21st century may not even be aware of. Mm So that's one of the challenges of the preacher, isn't it? To, yes, to of course. To connect those Yeah, and I think all those, those are
1: important. I have to take a family history for genetic predilections. Mm-hmm. I have to take a social history for habits. Mm-hmm. I have to take a personal history for demographics and occupation. I have to take a medical history for past ailments and earlier maladies. Mm-hmm. And then I have to examine the patient mm-hmm. and do the current Modalities of studying the current issue, the pericopy, if you will, mm-hmm. with all of those histories in the background contributing to my study of the facial rash that, uh-huh. say, you might have right. when you come to see me. Right. And all of those impinge on it, 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 to some extent, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Right. Sometimes the family history may not have anything to do with the facial rash. Exactly. Sometimes an occupational history may have everything to do with the facial mm-hmm. rash. So uh, that has to be you have to exercise some discretion over what's important, what's not. Mm -hmm. And this is where diagnostics are critically important. I got to see all of these observations, backgrounds, everything, and this is important. This is not, this is, this is, this is, because you're all adding to one thing, the diagnosis, which which is the best explanation for the observed symptoms, data, textual, clues.
0: Now, I feel like I would keep asking you questions. I'm not only going to get how to do a good sermon, but how to do a good diagnosis. Uh, <laughs> I, I think
1: the diagnosis of texts is something that we really need to be working a lot more on.
0: Yes, yes.
1: If it, it, not just a random, you know, for instance, I could, if you come into my office with a rash, I'm picking on your dad. Right, right. 63 year 63? Yes. Well, wait, 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 right, wait. right, uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. 63-year-old man with a December birthday coming in with a facial rash. That's he's, right. He's a little thin on the top. <laughs> he's got glasses. <laughs> he's wearing a brown shirt. Yeah. Now, how many of those are important for the rash? Right, right, right. Oh, yeah. by the way, he's got a little redness and yeah. some papules and macules yeah. Yeah, yeah, on the. Fa- yeah. I, I immediately have to discount. The, uh, the shirt is probably not going to. The fact that he's married to Sally is probably not <laughs> significant for his face unless right, she right, slapped him right, or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So I, I have got to immediately clear away some of the brush. Uh-huh. I can't, as uh, somebody once said, just be browsing like cattle, just picking every blade of grass, but I've got to be exercising. Does some discretion as to, ah, I think this is what is happening here.
0: And you're assembling a lot of pieces and trying to make, um, for lack of a better description, some sense out of all, all the pieces that you have. I mean... It, it's it's in medicine that's called inference to best explanation. Mm-hmm. Here are the symptoms,
1: and here are all kinds of observations, red right, shirt, right, brown sure, pants. Exactly, yeah. I'm discounting them. These, th- these are critical, and from that I'm going to make an inference. Mm-hmm. And if that facial rash, for mm-hmm. instance, is, say, psoriasis, mm-hmm. Well, now I'm going to be somewhat deductive and say, if it is psoriasis, Daryl should have something else, mm-hmm. say, on his fingernails. Mm-hmm. Psoriasis can't affect the fin- So let me see your fingernails. And mm-hmm. I look at that and say, oops, nothing there. Mm-hmm. So I better go back and say, I got it wrong. Uh-huh. So you're making an inference,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then based on the inference, deductive. Yes. Looking back at the text and, and, and say, if, and then you actually go back and refine. Exactly. So so here's the process as I see it. The first step is that quasi-mysterious. It's called abduction, really. Mm -hmm. It's an abductive reasoning. This, 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 boom, bang, they come together. This is probably it. Now I'm going to have a, a deductive approach. If this is it, then the text or the patient should have this, 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 and this as well. Every other thing in the text should be adding to that. And if it does, great. My diagnosis is established. If not, I got to redo it. So there's a deductive process. Mm -hmm. And at that time, with all of the deductive things, I may go back and do another inductive, which is refining my hypothesis. Mm -hmm. So it's abduction, then there's deduction, and there's back to induction which clarifies my diagnosis. Ah, I think this is what you have. Now let me apply it or let me treat it.
0: Yeah, great. And, and uh, you know, in the hermeneutics, of course, we talk about the hermeneutical spiral and the interplay between what's going on in the text and then what, what you're attempting to see there. And, and that it's a similar kind of uh, dynamic. Now let's talk a little bit about the move from the text to the, to the application because obviously the goal of preaching isn't merely to communicate content that I understand in my head. Um, you're you, you, a pastor we're back to the doctor image a pastor works on the heart um, and so um, so let's talk about that transition a little bit. How, how do you how do you encourage your students to move towards um, what you might consider to be appropriate application?
1: Uh, of, often I may even go so far as to uh, say always the call of the text will imply at least a very general application. Mm-hmm. For instance, in the First Samuel 15, mm-hmm. okay, the, once the force of the text hits the audience the, or the reader, me in my study, mm-hmm. I get the sense, yes, I need to be attending to listening to exclusively the voice of God and shunning the voices of the world.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So there's an inherent call of the text to live in this fashion. Mm-hmm. Now the question is, how do I start doing that? Mm-hmm. What are the habits that I can cultivate so that these habits take over, as Aristotle said, become Mm -hmm. second nature, Mm -hmm. and it becomes disposition, and it becomes Christ-likeness as it grabs all of my life. So this is where the pastoral wisdom comes in. Okay, we know we need to listen to the voice of God. How are we going to do that? Now, that's – it just struck me that uh, one thing that I did personally – I'm not sure if it was based on 1 Samuel 15 or not, but it fits, and I could use it for the sermon – is Uh, In the days when I was working, I I used to have a PC. Mm -hmm. I had an application launcher. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's a launcher, I could program key words to open a particular application. Mm -hmm. So my Bible program, I was using BibleWorks then, I programmed on this launcher to be launched with, when I type in the letters, H-I-A. For me, in my mind, it meant here I am. Mm Whenever I time in HIA, Bible Works opens up. Mm-hmm. It's a little habit that got me into thinking, this is the voice of God that I need to pay attention to. Here mm-hmm. I am. I'm walking into me. his room. I mean, yes, it's a sense of exclusive attention. Right, right. So it was a habit that got built up in me so much so that every time I fire up logos or mm-hmm. accordance, or there's a, am not doing HIA anymore. Right, right. But it's become second nature to start thinking, I'm in the presence. This is okay. this is a special place. I need to be listening. Mm-hmm. So th- this is the kind of thing that you want. That you, as the spiritual formation director, shepherd, all those synonyms, preacher, you're calling for a creation of certain habits and lifestyles, one step at a time, so that as it grabs you, it becomes a passion. So I always say, ritual practices, hmm. HIA, mm-hmm. lead to radical. Passions, mm-hmm. that it takes over, and then you see the benefit of doing that, it hits you even more. So you start doing it all the time. It just snowballs mm. into a powerful thing. This is what we hope to do week by week create new habits, immunization, so that the later problems may not affect. So you're, in a sense, going from the call of the text and you're giving certain significances how this may concretely be accomplished in your life, how you may draw one step closer to the call of the text to listen to God's
0: voice exclusively. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I, I've got about four different thoughts, and I'm trying to sort out which one I want to go. I, I think one of the questions that I have here is is that, of course, one of the challenges <coughs> of life is is that sometimes you're put in circumstances that you're not directly responsible for, that, that um, uh, you know, someone draws you in uh, to controversy. Or you're in a family where there's something else going on. In the dynamics are not something you contribute to, or something like that. And so, um, so, so this formation of character that we're talking about is so that is so important um, as a as a preventative exercise, which is part of what preaching is supposed to do, is also a forming exercise. So, no matter what circumstance or situation God places us in, we uh, we have attempted to become equipped and prepared for for dealing with it. Way back when. Right back when, that's right. Yeah, again, it's a full life life enrollment. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly.
1: So in my sermons, I I tell my students, don't shoot for too much. Uh Our responsibility is simply to take this text, Mm -hmm. show how life can change, and to create new habits with that. Mm -hmm. Don't try to accomplish everything in one sermon. Mm-hmm. You, if God gives you a chance, you might preach next week. Mm-hmm. Plus your people are listening to other sermons. We're simply just one little cock in this huge machine that
0: mm-hmm. God has. Mm-hmm. So my task, my responsibility is to this text for this moment for this audience. Okay. Now, we we got a very little time to talk about the conclusion. How do you wrap it up? I mean, how do you pull these all together? What do you hope to uh, achieve in a conclusion?
1: You may want to reiterate what the call of the text is mm-hmm. and then maybe give an image of how the application Has changed lives or something like that and concluded. Mm -hmm. Not and there are many different ways of doing that of course but oh, a yeah, summary sure. is probably the good way of looking at a conclusion and, and a, without any new material introduced in you may have forgotten something don't bring it into the conclusion
0: <laughs> throw it away it's yeah. gone it's
1: too late for so, that now. so
0: and we and we haven't wrapped up entirely the idea here <coughs> but in the midst of having introduced the topic of the sermon by the time you get to the end there it should, should have been be clear there should have been an idea that a theme that's kind of run through the sermon that right. a person could pick up and ideally if you communicate it clearly enough, if someone asked what was that sermon about, that idea would be very prominent in right. response and the that question you would get.
1: that you raised in the introduction should have been answered by the time it otherwise it's a bait and switch.
0: Right. You said you would answer this but never did. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's not good. Uh, well, Abe, I really do appreciate you taking the time to come in and just kind of walk us through what a sermon is like. You, you've certainly uh, earned your stripes. I, I, I can't imagine how many sermons you've heard in 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 your time here, uh, uh, both good and bad. You know, we get the privilege the last week of every semester to hear senior sermons, which are um, always very very well done, and you see the the uh, application of the skills that you're trying to teach the students and you get to hear um, very good preaching and it's an encouragement to know that you're on the team working uh, hard to help us um, do what we're tasked to do which is to prepare uh, people to teach and preach the word with accuracy and relevance, and so we thank you for taking the time. to Thank you us. for
1: your constant interest in preaching. I've always appreciated that, and thank you for this opportunity for this conversation.
0: Well, we're glad to, glad you were able to join us, and we thank you for joining us at the table. We hope you've enjoyed this kind of review of what a sermon is like, kind of looking at the inside uh, of what it takes to produce a sermon, and we hope you'll be back again with us soon on the table.